This is Perspectives, the show where an examination of our many differences often shows us how much we have in common. I'm Condice Presley. Our guest on the program is Valerie Jarrett. Yes, that Valerie Jarrett. She is one of the most influential black women of the 21st century. She's a mom, a daughter, a businesswoman, and a public servant. She's the longest serving senior advisor in the Obama White House. She's written a memoir, Finding My Voice, My Journey to the West Wing and the Path Forward. Valerie, as you've said, I can call you. It is an honor Thank and you, a privilege Candace. to have you on the show with us. Thank you for being here. I am delighted to be here. Now, we're here to discuss your book, but I got to start with, did you and your friend, Mrs. Obama, plan when your books were going to come out? You wanted to stagger that? We didn't synchronize them. Uh, really, she finished first, and then I... I did wait for a little while, knowing how immensely popular hers would be. I thought, well, let me give her a few months head start. <laughs> how uh, delighted have you been at her success? Becoming's likely to be the best-selling memoir of all time. I am not surprised. She worked hard. She opened up and told her story. And I think it has resonated not just across America, but across the world. What more could you ask for than to open up and tell your story and have other people feel connected to it? And that's what she's done. I love the two of you having read both of your books are, are so authentic. And you, you open and you share so much. Authenticity, I think, is so important these days. When did you know that you were going to write this book and what inspired you to do so? I was inspired by my daughter, who a few years ago, when she was 30, interviewed me for StoryCorps. And the first question she asked me is, what would you tell a 30-year-old Valerie Jarrett? And I thought about it for a moment. I realized, because I had a lot to say to a 30-year-old Valerie Jarrett. And so as I started to answer that question, I thought, well, I actually have something to say about a five-year-old Valerie Jarrett and a 45-year-old Valerie Jarrett. And then the next thing I knew, I thought, well, why don't I just make the decision to open up and tell my story? I turned 60 a week after the 2016 election. So it's kind of a watershed moment, and I'd had the best job in the world, and so that was a watershed as well as it came to a close. And as I reflected, looking back, honestly, for the first time in my life, I've always looked forward. I thought, well, if I could, if I could tell the story about this shy little girl who was different in a whole lot of ways and how I found my voice and learned how to use it not just to advocate for others but also for myself that maybe would help some other folks out there who are in search of their voices. So now you were born in Iran because your father, who was a physician, and your mom, who's an educator, he's like, there are no jobs over here for African-Americans. I'm going to go do the work that I've trained to do and do it there. And then you had this whole adjustment to make when, as what, you were like five or six, you guys came back to the States. Yeah, it was it was interesting because my parents left, as you said, because my father in particular could not find a job at a major teaching institution to do the research he was trained to do at a level comparable to his white counterparts. And he and my mom were adventuresome spirits, and so off they went, and he helped start the first hospital in Shiraz, Iran. I was the second baby born in that hospital. They practiced on some poor other child first. And we lived there till I was five, and from there he was recruited to go to the Galton Labs in the University College of London. And from there, the dean of the University of Chicago Medical Center heard him give a paper at an international conference and offered him a position in Chicago. So a job that six years earlier was out of reach was available to him because he was prepared to take the leap of faith and get way outside his comfort zone, go to a country he knew nothing about, and excel not as an African-American or in that time Negro doctor, but as an American doctor. And it gave him a level of confidence 
when he came back to the United States. But when we returned to Chicago, to your question, we're going back home from my mom. She's from Chicago, grew up there. My dad had done his residency there. They were married there. It felt very familiar to them. My mom's family all lived there. To me, it was like going to a foreign country. And it took me a little while, frankly, to fit in. And I I regret now that uh, I didn't appreciate how unusual my childhood was those first five years. And I used to get beat up in school because I was from a country no one had ever heard of. And I had a British accent because of the year we spent in Great Britain. And and you didn't look like the other kids. I did not look like the other kids. And I was placed two years ahead of myself in school. A whole bunch of reasons to get beat up. And my younger cousin used to have to come to my defense. And she was six pounds, six months younger and 10 pounds lighter. And it was humiliating that she had to protect me. But I stopped speaking Farsi, the language in Iran. I lost the British accent. I just want to be like the other kids. And I didn't appreciate enough just how we are all our stories. And uh, you have to be willing to tell your whole story. And that's what I tried to do in the book. And I'm delighted that you said it was authentic because I wanted it to be honest and real and relatable. Because if it isn't, well, then what's the point? Tell us more about your family. I, I'm especially interested in this relative you have, y'all called Putin. Now, that's oh, that's a yes. Southern thing. I just yes. went all Southern on you there. You did. But, I noticed but, that. Yeah, y'all call her Putin. Wow. Putin was my mother's mother and the matriarch of our family. And in the neighborhood we lived in, in Chicago, everything evolved around Putin. Uh, if you're late coming home from work, call Putin, and she'll be right there for to take care of the kids. If somebody's sick, then Putin's right there. She always had a big pot of soup and gingerbread baking in the oven, and uh, I just loved her dearly. In fact, the one time I remember running away from home where, regretfully, my mother helped me pack. I do remember that at about age six. Off I went around the corner to Puddin's, and she not only was a person who gave us unconditional love and support, but she also was instrumental in telling us the story of our family and our ancestors, photos of whom were on her walls and who she took the time to understand uh, so that she could describe from whence we came. Your mom is an educator, retired educator. Your father No, nope, still working full-time at like age 90. Years, I know. Say, she's like 90 still, years old. She still teaches graduate school, goes to work every day, drives. Not so sure about the driving, but very self-sufficient. Now, you need to do something about that. You probably can get your mama a driver. I could if she would just. I'm on the board of Lyft. I keep encouraging her to use it. It'll be there in two minutes, and she likes the independence. <laughs> so clearly, with such accomplished parents and a grandmother who told you who you were and schooled you on your family, Clearly, even for a young Valerie who was getting bullied in the south side of Chicago as, as a little kid, you knew great things were expected of you, didn't you? I knew that I had uh, I stood on the shoulders of people who broke all kinds of barriers, from my parents to my grandparents to my great-grandparents. And so, in a sense, I thought the possibilities were endless, but I also thought, oh my gosh, how will I ever measure up? And so it was a combination of emotions. When did you decide what you wanted to be when you grew up and what led you to go to law school and decide that you were going to be an attorney? All right. Well, since we're friends and now your listening audience are also my friends, I'm just going to be very honest with you. I had no idea what I was going to do when I was in college. Um, I thought about majoring in pre-med. I had a boyfriend. You were at Stanford, right? I was at Stanford undergrad, yes. I had a boyfriend who took me to his anatomy class and and showed me the cadavers at the same time as I was taking organic chemistry. That was the end of that. I majored in psychology, has come in very handy. I slept through the GMAT exam, so business school was off the table. It was a good party the night before. And my best friend was in law school two years older than I. And she said, go to law school. You don't have to practice law, but it'll be a great experience for you. 
And so off I went. And because I didn't have a real passion, I thought I needed a plan. And so I developed a plan when I was a senior in college about what I was going to do. And it went kind of like this. I was going to go right to finish college, go to law school, figure out my passion in the law, fall in love, get married, have a baby before 30, and then live happily ever after. That was my plan. Yeah, that and, didn't happen, though. Well, not the not the happily ever after, but just about everything else did. And so I married the boy next door. I have a perfect job by everybody's definition, a big corporate law firm. I did have my daughter, the most perfect thing I've ever done, just shy of my 29th birthday. And by 31, I looked up and I was miserable. And I realized I was leading somebody else's life, but not my own. And it's the first time I actually listen to the quiet but most important voice, and that's the one inside of each of us. And I had a good friend who had um, was a lawyer and had joined city government working for Mayor Harold Washington, the first black mayor of Chicago, and he'd just been reelected. And my friend said, why don't you join city government? You'll feel a part of something bigger than yourself. And I kept thinking if I continue doing what I'm doing, both in my marriage and in my profession, my daughter wouldn't really look up to me when she grew up, and I wanted her to be proud of me. And so I took this leap of faith, and I joined city government, and I left the fancy office and the big salary, and I moved into a cubicle with a window facing an alley, and I left my husband, and uh, I was terrified, really terrified. And I used to stay up late at night and go into my daughter's room checking on her, and I thought, what prepared me to be a single mom? My parents were married well, by the time my dad died, they'd been married 62 years. And that was my role model of a very supportive um, marriage. And so now what? And I had to learn to take care of myself. And in that process, I became stronger and more confident. And I realized, actually, this isn't so bad after all. And uh, swerving outside of my comfort zone in that predetermined plan, having the courage to take that leap of faith, similarly to what my dad did when he left the country is where I discovered the adventure called life. And the magic was really in the zigzag, not the straight line. How did you get through those times of uncertainty, those late nights when you're thinking, what am I going to do? I just thought, you know, this little baby, and I'd go stare at her in her crib, and I'd say, she's counting on me. And I better, you know, figure out how to stand on my own two feet. And I had thought uh, mistakenly that getting married would complete me. And I would never be lonely again. And, and, and my mother said I was just trying too hard to be like the perfect wife as opposed to who I really was. And I really noticed in the course of my marriage that I had never been as lonely as I was in an unhappy marriage. And uh, realizing that kind of gave me the courage to say, well, let me try something else then. And I think it was incremental. It wasn't like one day I had this burst of independence and self-sufficiency. But over time, I realized that I was actually able to take care of myself quite well, and that I was happier working for city government, even though everybody around me thought I'd lost my mind when I left the big law firm. And I think that success in government in the sense that I was helping the people of Chicago who didn't have people who had been advocating for them and that I could use my education and my experience in the private sector to come to bear to improve their lives was really fulfilling. And I used to take my daughter to work and expose her to the city of Chicago in a way that I thought would give her the infinite possibilities that my grandmother's stories had given to me. And then tragically early in his second term, Mayor Washington died. 
soon after I had arrived in government. I was devastated by his death. I was right there outside of his office as they wheeled him through and the paramedics were trying to resuscitate him. And so, yeah, that was another kind of zigzag. Now what do I do? But I decided to stay because by that point, I really was enjoying my job. And I had found a mentor who worked in the mayor's office who also decided to stay. And she really looked after me and taught me how to be a good lawyer because she was such an amazing client and and kind of schooled me, um, not just on law, but on policy uh, and politics. And she changed my life. Everybody should have not just a mentor, but an advocate who's looking out for them. Makes a big difference. And you appear to have paid that forward with Mrs. Obama. Well, I hope so. When I first met Michelle Robinson in the summer of 1991, I will never forget, Congress, how she walked in my office, like confident and you know, hair pulled back, barely any makeup, but um, had her act together. You could just feel it, you know, looked at me straight in the eye, shook my hand. She saw her resume sitting on my desk, never mentioned, you know, Princeton undergrad, Harvard Law School. She told me her story. She had the confidence to know it was important for me to know her, and then she wanted to get to know me. And I gave her a job offer on the spot, didn't have any authority to do it, but I just was like, this is an amazing young woman. I really want her to come and join the administration. And wisely, she demurred, said, let me think about it for a few days. And then when I spoke to her a couple days later, she said, "Uh, well, we have a problem. My fiancé doesn't think it's such a good idea. And I said, well, who is your fiancé, and why do we care what he thinks? And she said, with a chuckle, his name is Barack Obama. He started his career as a community organizer on the south side of Chicago, and he has some reservations about me joining the daily administration. Would you be willing to have dinner with us and talk about it? And am I glad I said yes? I bet that was some dinner. It was, and you know, since then people have said, well, that's unusual for a fiancé to want her uh, to have her intended right there. But then what I say in response is there isn't a major decision that President Obama made in his career without her right there at the table as well. And so I think it speaks to the relationship the two of them have of respect, not just love, but respect and trust, and that they're in this as a partnership. No one's going it alone. And so I thought they reminded me of my parents. They reminded you of your parents And what an amazing journey that friendship with that couple led you to explore. Who knew? Who knew? Well, you know what I thought when I first had dinner with them? And we had a three-hour dinner that night as I was trying to convince both of them that she should take this leap of faith. Uh, First of all, I opened up and told them my story. And I found we had a lot in common uh, with Michelle Obama in terms of her parents and their marriage and their appreciation for education and excellence and support of us, and with uh, Barack Obama in that he'd lived in Indonesia for a while, and we talked about our perspective on the United States having lived outside of it and the appreciation we had for it. Especially as children. As young children, we both said, well, we go in a room and expect to find something in common with whomever's in the room, regardless of their background, because we played with people from all over the world as kids. And we also had an appreciation of the United States and how we who have not left the United States sometimes take it for granted a bit, but that it's also, an, you know, the greatest country on earth. It's not the only country on earth, and you can learn a great deal outside of the United States. But at the end of the dinner, I looked at him and I thought to myself, oh, what a talented young man. I bet maybe, just maybe one day, he could be mayor of Chicago. That was the ceiling, because that's all I had known in terms of black excellence in politics was that was the pinnacle. He exceeded my expectations from that night. 
Would you ever consider seeking public office? Uh, no, I don't think so. I've thought about it uh, in the past. And I think at this stage of my life, what I'm most interested in doing is helping other people who want to run for office and get civically engaged. It's one of the reasons why Mrs. Obama and I started an organization called When We All Vote to change the culture around voting and help people appreciate that it is the most fundamental and basic responsibility of citizenship. But it shouldn't end there. You should do more. And that's why I'm helping President Obama with his foundation, which is a platform to help develop evidence-based strategies to take civic engagement to scale. For people who want to help but don't quite know what to do, we want to make it as easy for them as possible. And then I'm also quite committed to gender equity. And so I started a not-for-profit call when we, the United State of Women. And the United State of Women is uh, there to fight for gender equity. And I think oftentimes, uh, Connors, about how as a young single working mother, I felt like I was hanging on by my fingertips but I had a good paying job. I could afford childcare. I had parents who lived in my neighborhood. My dad took my daughter to work and pick, to school rather and picked her up every day from preschool until the end of high school. And if I was holding on by my fingertips, what was that young working parent working two shifts at a factory minimum wage with no support network around them? How, what, what were they doing to survive? And what should employers be thinking about to be able to not just to track but retain the best talent and so fighting for working families and that's everything from equal pay to paid leave to paid sick days to workplace flexibility to affordable childcare to a work environment free from sexual harassment this is what i hear as i travel around the country working families want and uh, i had much of that and it still was hard and so i always tell young moms particularly don't think if you're smarter or you worked harder or you're more efficient or better organized or slept fewer hours that it's going to be any less hard. It's just hard. Raising children and having a job uh, is demanding. And, and I just, I can remember thinking, what's wrong with me that this is so hard? And I didn't share openly how hard it was. I tried to pretend like I got this. I got it all. I'm super, I'm super woman. Well, none of us are super women. I remember being like nine months pregnant in a conference room trying to close a deal. And I kept getting up and go to the Xerox machine, I would tell them, or the vending machine, or check voicemail. Where was I going where all pregnant women go at nine months to the bathroom? And I didn't feel like I could admit, because I thought if I, if I did, maybe they wouldn't take me so seriously. Like when the guys go to soccer practice with their kids and leave work early, everybody goes, oh, aren't they a wonderful dad? But particularly my generation, when women did that, we were held to a very different standard. And I think what's refreshing about the millennials, men and women, is that they are speaking up uh, and saying what they need. And employers who are smart are responding to that. And I think that's good. I think that's good for working families. I think it's good for the economy. And I think it makes us more globally competitive because all over the rest of the world, employers are vying for talent. And you can work anywhere now, right? Yes. And so if... People in Sweden are, be giving a year, are given a year maternity and paternity leave, and we aren't doing that here in the United States. We're going to lose talent. Talking about being held to a higher standard, and you wrote about this when the whole Roseanne Barr incident happened. Your mom said that that attack on you personally was an attack on all of us as people of color. And at first you didn't quite see it that way, and you guys had a, a really deep conversation. Can you share some of that with our listeners? Yes. Well, so to understand my mom, let's take a step back. So having grown up in the Jim Crow era in Chicago, 
living in a community where only blacks could live because of restrictive covenants preventing their moving around. Uh, she had a certain expectation that the you know the world is not your oyster, but you're going to have to work twice as hard and have a little bit of luck and have a bold vision, and then maybe maybe you might make progress. Uh, she never believed that Barack Obama or any black man would be elected president in her lifetime. Neither did my dad, and so his remarkable success gave her a sense of progress. That well, we are making progress here, and so. So her thought was here, and she said, look, I know you're fine, but that someone like you could re- achieve your, the stature and success that you've had, but yet there's still people out there that are going to refer to you in a, as a, in a racist trope, that that is painful for everybody, and that it's symptomatic of a much bigger issue here, which is that our country still has not confronted discrimination and racism the way we have to do. And look, I get it. It's uncomfortable to talk about. Uh, People with the best of intentions still have a hard time talking about race in America, but it's only going to get better if we do talk about it. And thanks to cell phones, for example, we're capturing a lot more on tape that went kind of brushed under the rug. I'm sure you know about the talk that we all have with our sons. And I had white colleagues, even in the administration, who said to me, "What's, what's that talk you guys keep referring to? Nobody talks about it because it's embarrassing to have to teach our sons to be different and to know that even if you're in a car with your white colleagues and they're smarting back to the police, you don't get to do that. The rules, those rules don't apply to you. Yeah. But I think it's good that we're having that conversation now and that things are much more out in the open and that's how... We make progress. But my mom and I got into it because she was listing all the things that have gone wrong in the last couple of years, really important progress that we had made that's being rolled back, whether it's attempts to repeal the Affordable Care Act or walking away from the climate deal or breaking up our uh, deal to keep Iran from developing nuclear weapons uh, or this sense of polarization and toxicity that's in the air. And I was talking about the Women's March and the young kids from Parkland who travel the country registering people to vote and the response to the Muslim ban and the response to the breaking up the families at the border. And in the end, she looked at me and she said, the difference between us is that you think we're almost at the mountaintop. And she said, I think we're dangling over the precipice. And uh, some of it is just, I'm always a glass half full and she's a glass half empty. Some of it are her life experiences compared to mine. But in the end, my observation is that we're probably both right. And that the, and that we are at an inflection point in our country. And when 43% of eligible voters don't vote, this is the result. And the question is, what are we going to do about it? And are we going to have the will, the political will, to find a candidate in the Democratic Party? Just as when the midterm elections, you saw enormous momentum and activism. Can we keep that up and put our country back on a path that is one that is going to provide an even even playing field to every young child, regardless of color or background, and where we don't just shrink the pie, but we try to enlarge in the pie so that there's enough for everybody. And do we care about ensuring every American doesn't view health care as a privilege, but a right? I mean, there's some core values that are at stake here, and I'm prepared to fight for those core values, and I hope that a lot of other people join that effort. You share so much in such an authentic way in your in your book. What is it that you're hoping readers will take away from that, especially the young women who will read? That life should be an adventure and that if you never stumble and fall, then you haven't had an exciting enough life and that when you do stumble, you will have the strength to get back up. And life is full of multiple chapters and each one has trade-offs and we should make uh, informed decisions and recognize the trade-offs 
and not look at those as sacrifices, but look at them quite intentionally. Uh, but the question is, did you lead a purposeful life? Did you build relationships? Did you love? Were you loved? Do you feel like you made other people's lives better? Did you use your voice to empower others and to advocate for what you believe in? And I think that's the better measure of a life well lived. The book is Finding My Voice, My Journey to the West Wing and the Path Forward. The author is Valerie Jarrett. And if you're not one who is picking up the book to read it, uh, definitely download the audiobook for you narrate that and we get to hear you tell your story. Thank you so much. And everybody remember, Mother's Day is coming right up. I think it's a pretty good gift. I absolutely agree. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Perspectives is a half hour we produce with you in mind. If there's something you think we ought to be talking about, let me hear from you. Tweet me, condo 29 on Twitter, or leave a message on our Facebook page. We do appreciate your listening and hope you'll be back next week at this same time as we examine another perspective.